Chapter twenty six of the Milky Way. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Milky Way by F. Tennyson Jesse. Chapter twenty six. We leap screaming. By the time this masterpiece was achieved, the sun was high in the heavens, and my chalks were worn to mere stumps that hurt my fingertips to use. The crowd threatened by Joe began mysteriously to collect out of the blue, and pennies showered into my expectant cap. A good many people spoke to me, and I answered them in broadest Cornish. There happened to be no one standing at gaze when a door in the wall opened and an elderly man, his portly form outlined in a white waistcoat, stepped on to the pavement. He came along it, then caught sight of my picture gallery and stopped abruptly. "'Is that your own work?' he asked. "'Yes, fay for sure,' said I. Then he began to cross-examine me. Where had I learned to draw? How old was I? Why was I doing it? And had I thought of the theme myself? To all of which I answered truthfully still in Cornish. It was while the old gentleman stood gazing and rapping out his questions that I first noticed a very peculiar couple drifting up the street on the opposite side. At least one of the persons drifted. The other, and smaller, seemed to be trying to guide her along. The old gentleman saw my fixed gaze and turned too and he, Peter, and I stared at the newcomers. Forgetting my dialect, I clutched Peter by the arm and declared, Peter, that's either a man in disguise or a lunatic. For the bigger of the two creatures advancing was indeed large beyond the dreams of avarice, and walked with an extraordinary rolling kind of gait. She, if she it were, was attired in clothes far too small for her generous proportions. On her head, where the hair was sleeked down so tightly as to appear a wig, was perched a rusty and wholly inadequate crepe bonnet. Enormous blue spectacles, with side-pieces of glass, were astride her nose, which latter feature stared triumphantly through a hole in the blue gauze veil that covered her face. In her arms she carried, as though it were a baby, a bunch of magenta asters, which she rocked to and fro in time with her undulating gait. The little grey-haired person with her also wore spectacles, but of untinted glass and her attention seemed divided between her companion and a hunch of brown bread at which she was gnawing. A schoolgirl with her books was walking down the pavement. She of the goggles pranced up to her, and, shaking the magenta asters, leaned forward and glared into the girl's face. With one yell, the girl dropped her books and ran. The peculiar couple then began to cross the road in our direction, and at that moment a policeman appeared round a corner of the road. 
For a moment, evidently aware of their striking aspect, the couple paused, then seeing a door in the wall, and little knowing the elderly gentleman staring at them in such amazement had just stepped out of it, they pushed it open and bolted in. Apparently propitiated by this, the policeman was passing on, when the old gentleman exploded with a violent, Officer, officer, go after those people at once. That's my house. A kind of gasping chuckle seemed to come from over my head. I looked up, and there was the lunatic leaning over the wall. She was toying, there is no other word for it, with two enormous iron nails, knocking them foolishly one against the other, and smiling seraphically. Her large hands, bursting out of their black thread gloves, seemed to flop loosely from the wrist. Ting, ting, went the nails, and the lunatic smiled on, while Peter, the old gentleman, the policeman and I, stood rooted to the spot. Then the policeman bestirred himself. This will need caution, he observed heavily. Lunatics is ticklish work. He too made for the door in the wall. Suddenly Peter gave a shriek and caught my arm. It's Joe, he gasped. I recognize her nose. It's Joe and Chloe. It was. We, in our turn, darted into that garden, and the luckless owner of it, ejaculating, Either all of you are mad or I am, sprinted after us. Once within, we found ourselves in an oblong paved courtyard, with an urn full of geraniums in the middle, and round this urn dodged the policemen, Chloe and Joe, who had descended from the ladder which leant against the wall. Joe held her skimpy skirts well up and away from enormous elastic-sided boots that I remembered seeing in the property box and whenever the policeman made a little run at her, she skipped coyly to one side, Chloe behind her. Peter slipped between them and the policeman. Run, he shouted. They put down their heads and charged. The policeman wheeled round, but there is a limit to the speed at which a heavy body can change its course. And Joe and Chloe got clear out of the door we on their heels, the policeman and the old gentleman on ours. Oh, oh, idiots that we were, shrieked Chloe, her powdered hair descending on her respectable jet-trimmed mantle. Joe's crape bonnet rose and fell on her head like a bad rider on horseback. An ominous zip came from her skirt but helpless laughter jerked from her as she ran. Peter and I could easily have outrun them, town birds that they were, so we seized an arm of each and urged them on. Stop, thieves, bellowed the old gentleman. From the policeman came no sound but the heavy thud, thud of his regulation boots. A messenger boy forgot his errand, a milkman left his cart. Several indescribable unemployed joined in, and on we all tore. 
We doubled round a corner, then again, and yet again. Our only chance lay in keeping to the network of side streets, and so it came about that we found ourselves again in the street where we had started. As I ran, the idea came into my head that the performance in which we were all engaged was absurdly like the scene I had drawn on the pavement. At our head ran the fawn-like Peter, a bunch of chrysanthemums still under one arm, and his flute in his hand, while behind pounded as incongruous a procession as any I could have imagined. At the thought I laughed aloud, and the more I laughed, the more my breath failed me, and the less capable I became of running. We were all beginning to flag, and fresh pursuers who had just joined the chase were on our heels. There was only one thing to be done, and Peter did it. He dashed once more through the door in the wall, Joe, Chloe, and I after him, and slamming the door, we locked and barred it. It was then that we perceived that the old gentleman, who had early retired winded from the chase, had taken refuge in his garden to await events. As the blows of our pursuers began to rain upon the door, the old gentleman rushed to open it. I slipped in front of him and stood with my back against it. Please, please listen a moment, I begged. We aren't mad or thieves, indeed we aren't. It's all a mistake. I mean, part of it was a joke, and the rest was trying to earn our living. Oh, do please listen. Considering that it must have seemed to him as though the world were upside down, or he had strayed into the middle of a comic opera, he pulled himself together wonderfully. For a second we stood looking into each other's eyes, then, at the indignant bellow of the policeman from the other side of the door, I spoke again, desperately. I give you my word of honour we've done nothing wrong, I said. Please send everyone away and let me tell you about it. I'm, we all are, awfully sorry that we've upset you so. Upon my word, I don't know why I should believe you, he replied, but I do believe you all the same come this way. The policeman, I suggested, hadn't you better say something to him? Once roused, policemen are difficult to soothe. You are right, said the old gentleman. Officer, he called, send that rabble away and come round to the front door. Now, young lady, perhaps you and your, your friends had better follow me. We all trailed into the house after him, and were shut into a room lined with books, to think over our sins while he parleyed with the policeman. Eventually, as I have learned since, the policeman accepted a drink and a little matter of a coin, as a salve for his wounded dignity, and the elderly gentleman joined us in the study. And now, said he, having dragged me, a respectable publisher of the age of, of my age, round the streets with a rabble of errand boys, to say nothing of bursting into my garden and making free with my gate. Perhaps you'll explain the meaning of it all. 
I'll hear the little lady of the pavement pictures first. So then I began. I told him how Peter and I were stranded with nothing to do, although Peter was beginning to sell his articles, and how it had occurred to us to combine in industries of the pavement. Also how I had thought I should attract less attention if I dressed suitably for the part, hence the rusty black shawl. Peter here threw in as a parenthesis that he had found his usual clothes did very well for a flower-seller, just as they were. The old gentleman nodded at each point in my tale, then waved his hand towards Jo and Chloe. "'And your friends?' he asked, who after all were the cause of the whole trouble. Where do they come in? His glance softened as it fell on Chloe, and well it might. The powder had shaken out of her hair, and her hair itself lay tumbled in a web of pale yellow on her shoulders. She had contrived, while the old gentleman was busy with the policeman, to turn down the prim black tucker of her gown so as to show her white slim neck. The bejetted mantle she wore slipping off her shoulders like a fashionable scarf. The whole rapid adjustment was so characteristic of Chloe, and so eminently successful. Her absurd little bonnet and big spectacles were tucked away in her pocket, and she now looked up appealingly. "'Oh, it was all my fault, Joe's and mine,' she said artlessly, in the best little girl manner we knew so well. "'You see, Viv, Miss Vivian Lovell, who's just been talking to you, wanted us to go with her and Mr. Wimperus to the market this morning. And when we said we didn't want to get up so early, she said we weren't sporting. So Joe and I decided we would be sporting, in a way Viv hadn't meant. We dressed ourselves like this and set off to find her and Peter. We had a little difficulty because they weren't in the main road where we expected to find them. And we had such thrilling adventures. Once we had to take a taxi to get away from the crowd, and Joe bowed to the people as we drove along, like royalty. Joe now spoke for the first time. My fault, really, she said in her gruff boy's voice, and I'm paid out. I can't stretch my legs in this skirt. She laughed suddenly, her big beautiful laugh that makes you wonder how you ever thought her plain, and the next moment an answering smile began to twitch on the face of the elderly gentleman. He tried to restrain it, but unavailingly, and the next moment he broke into a roar of laughter. At the relief of it we all began to laugh helplessly and the more we laughed, the more we had to, till we ached with it, and the tears ran down. At last, still gasping, we wiped our faces and grew calmer, and our host rang the bell. Some fruit and cake and things, he told the man who answered it, and some hock and seltzer. I never eat more for lunch, he added, turning to us. But I hope you'll join me. I ought to have been at my office long ago, 
but now it is so late it may as well be later. You seem to be the ringleader, Miss Viv, so you shall sit here by me. I want to talk to you about those drawings of yours. I drew up my chair, and we plunged into the subject of illustrating as an art. We were still at it when the lunch arrived, and afterwards, previous to summoning the cab which was the only method of getting us all home unobserved, he and I went out to inspect my stretch of pavement again. You must give this sort of thing up, my dear, he told me, and come into the legitimate profession of illustrating. I'm not going to promise anything, but I shouldn't wonder if I hadn't work for you to do. Oh, you're an angel, I said. But do you think you could possibly find something for Peter, too? You've no idea how brilliantly he writes, far, far better than I draw. Tell me about this Peter of yours. Any relation, eh? No, I only met him six months ago, on a cargo tramp. We were wrecked and lost all our worldly goods, so we became platonics. I'm great on platonics, and have always tried to get things to do together ever since. In short, you love him like a brother, remarked my new friend. No, it doesn't feel quite like that, I said, wrinkling my brows. It's more, more as though he were my son. Don't laugh at me. Girls are always older than men, you know. I wasn't laughing, my dear, he said. Then, I'll see what I can do for your Peter. Send specimens of your work, yours and his, round to my office. Here's my card. And now for two cabs. You've made me so confoundedly late between you, I shall have to forgo my usual exercise. Though when I think of that run, I'm not sure I haven't had enough to last me a week. He bade us farewell, and we insisted on his acceptance of all Peter's stock of flowers to decorate his office. And then Joe, Chloe, Peter, and I drove off in state to the hencoop. It was late that night, after much excited discussion of what the future might bring forth, that Peter went home to his attic. The chrysanthemum he had stuck in his buttonhole he gave to me, and I slept with it under my pillow as a mascot. End of chapter 26